Holly. It's good to be here. Um, first, let me just say that uh, that was a very poignant opening. Uh, rest in peace, Ali. I think it's a testament to the fact that if you if you come here and you become part of this thing, we will fall in love with you. And when there comes a day when you're not here anymore, we will miss you. And so, so if you are new, welcome home. If nobody wants you, we want you. You know. So uh, I want to thank uh, my dear friend Brett for making the trip out with me. We're childhood friends. Thank you for coming. And of course, I want to thank Monica for inviting me wherever she is. Uh, it is an honor and a privilege to be a speaker in Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope I never forget that. And, um, and therefore, I will do my best to try and carry the message, not because I'm an exemplary member of AA, but I do believe, as the, as the old folks used to say, that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And so that's, that would be me, the crooked stick. So I'm from uh, the Pasadena area, the Rose City Speakers Meeting is my home group. I have a sponsor by the name of Gerald P. My sobriety date is October the 11th, 1994. My last cake was for 28 years. And um, I always like to clear up the ethnic ambiguity. <laughs> In case you're wondering, what kind of human is this? Like, uh, what's going on? So, uh, uh, my father was uh, black. My mother was white stuff. White stuff, Scotch, Irish, English, etc. And so, we were a racially mixed family. When I was a little kid, we moved to a racially mixed neighborhood. It made perfect sense. There's a place called Inglewood, California. <laughs> You've heard it. You've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out it wasn't really racial. It was just the white people hadn't finished packing yet. <laughs> and, uh, they, they, were, they were quickly heading out of town. Um, I wasn't paying attention. You know, I was a little boy. I did notice a shift in the dog population, though. Like all the poodles moved away. No more collies. Pretty soon it was just pit bulls and chihuahuas. <laughs> like what happened? So, the point is, is that I grew up in a black neighborhood with a white mother. I felt like I was different. You know, I felt like a chameleon on a checkered shirt. I just couldn't quite blend in, you know. And of course I found the answer when I was 11. Uh, almost 12, I drank two and a half cans of Old English 800, and I would never be the same. Yeah. And then eventually I would learn that alcohol would vaccinate me from my, from my fears and my feelings. And, and there was really no turning back at that time. And so in my, my uh, mid to late teens, I started to experience what we call around here the first nip of the ringer right, the first wave of problems. See, I had transferred from Morningside High School in Inglewood to Aviation High School in Redondo Beach because obviously school was the problem, right? And there I found you people, 
and I learned some new tricks. And one day um, before lunch, I took a, a quaalude. Now, if you're a young person, that was a, a, a popular hypnotic sedative of my generation. And I didn't feel it. So at lunchtime, I drank a half a pint of Southern Comfort. And I went to my next class. I was sitting there quite relaxed. <laughs> I was enjoying class. All of a sudden I heard this horrific crash. It had been my head. I had face planted on the desk and it bounced back up. I looked around the whole class, including the teacher were frozen in astonishment. I stood up. I thought it was a good time to make a speech. It was a short speech. It went like this, I said, uh, I'm sick. <laughs> I mean, truer words have never been spoken. I'm sick. And then the whole class was like, oh, yes. And then I drove home, right? And not very well, I might ask, you know. And I can retell that story at least a dozen times, you know, just switching out a little circumstances. Yeah. So it's really not that surprising that I found myself in Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time when I was 18 years old. Um, one more time, I was disappointed with myself. I was, I was feeling that, uh, you know, the beginnings of the incomprehensible demoralization and a, a hotline number flashed on the screen late one night and I called it. And the lady on the other end said, you should go to a meeting. She said, there are no meetings in Inglewood, but there is one in Redondo Beach. And so it was kind of serendipitous, you know, because I made that school transfer. So I kind of knew where it was. And I had never heard of AA. This is before, you know, AA became a household word. There were no uh, television shows that referenced Alcoholics Anonymous. People didn't talk about going to a 12-step program. That was just not part of the vernacular at the time. And so I didn't know what to expect. And I slid into a meeting very much like this. I came late. I sat way in the back in the, I dare you to get me sober seat. <laughs> and I, uh, I was guarded, but there was something about you people, you know, the warmth, the humor, the way you told your stories, the hard way, you know, exposing the unvarnished truth. And it got to me, it did. And I ended up uh, coming back. People said, you know, keep coming back. And I did. And, and eventually I started to go to meetings every day. I think I drug you to one of those meetings back then. I got a sponsor and I started working the first three steps. And eventually the sponsor started talking about this searching and fearless moral inventory. And it scared me. I wasn't ready to trust anyone with my story. And of course I drank. And I began that revolving door of coming in and out of the rooms and in and out of treatment, you know. 
And I did that. Um, I did that a lot for a long time. And then once I got this bright idea, right? I got this bright idea because I, I have a history with drugs. Um, and I thought, you know, I was heading out of town alone. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll just leave the, the, the other stuff alone and I'll just drink like a gentleman, right? And so I was in a strange town. I saw a bar that spoke to me. The name of the bar was called The Garage, you know? And you see, I had had this, I had this romantic notion from books and movies about drinking. You know, I, I was just, I was just uh, enamored by this, this idea of people getting dressed up and going to these beautiful bars and, and sipping drinks and having stimulating conversation. None of my drinking had ever looked like that, by the way. I was, I was you know, sipping Mad Dog 2020 out of a paper sack. But I thought, you know, that's, that's the kind of drink I wanted to be. I'm, and I'm, I'm out of town alone. I see this bar and, uh, it's, and, and it's called The Garage, you know, and that's where I want to begin my debonair drinking career. And I go in, I'm nervous. So um, I have a couple of shots real quick. And I look around and I notice that um, there's a lot of men in the bar. Um, but uh, maybe it's fellas night, you know. I'm, I'm, new, I'm new to the bar scene, right? I'm new, I don't, I don't really know. And, uh, I have a couple of more drinks and I realize that uh, this is a tight-knit group. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of love in the garage. Yeah. I have a couple of more drinks before I have this drunken epiphany. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is, it, is it possible? Like, is this a, is this a gay bar? <laughs> I figured I'd ask somebody. I didn't know anyone. I figured I might as well ask this very nice gentleman I was dancing with. <laughs> Yeah, that didn't work out. Um, I get home and, uh, you know, I'm a young man. I'm still living with my folks. My folks have a bright idea too. They're like, why don't you just get a job and straighten up and fly right, you know, um, which is logical. It's very logical. But of course, logic is not a treatment plan for alcoholism. It would be nice if it were, but, but I complied. I, I got a job in the mail room of a large law firm in Century City, in downtown Los Angeles. I mean, in, in Beverly Hills uh, section of Los Angeles. And I was grateful for that job. I mean, it was a good job for me under the circumstances, uh, having dropped out of college multiple times. Um, I was very grateful. But I, I drank on the very first day of this job. I couldn't keep it together one day. And the reason is simple. It's very simple. The reason I drank on the first day of this job is because they hired an alcoholic, you know? And I worked there for 10 months before I knew the jig was soon to be up. I knew it. I knew it was when a coworker, just a kid that worked with me in the mailroom, he slid up to me one day very quietly. He said, Billy, can I ask you a question? 
And so um, just so you know, that if you are drinking on the job and a coworker very sheepishly comes up and says, can I ask you a question? The correct answer is no. <laughs> very important because uh, chances are you will not like that question. And I didn't. He said, he said, Billy, how come after lunch you always slur your words? Oh, that my heart dropped, right? Because I knew if he knew, then everybody knew, you know? And I also was pretty sure he was just concerned about me, that he, he was not interested in the technical answer. I didn't tell him, well, it's a combination of the, the malt liquor and the methadone for that to produce that effect. I didn't, you know, I didn't give him the rest of it. But... And, uh... and sure enough, you know, within days of that conversation, I was, I was fired. I was not at all surprised that I was terminated, but I was devastated. I was devastated for two reasons. Reason number one is that um, it was dawning on me that I was not going to be able to shirk off this alcoholism and become a regular person. Like that just wasn't gonna happen. And then the other part, was this, was that um, my father had just been diagnosed with cancer. So here I am, I'm living at home. I'm unemployable. I've dropped out of school. I'm, you know, I don't have anything going on. I try to be the dutiful son and to be there for my father, you know, and I would take him to chemotherapy. And if he could eat before or after, we would, we would go have sushi. That was our thing. And that, um, that worked out for a while, but eventually, after about a year, my father got progressively worse. And I got progressively worse. And there came a day when my father was gravely ill. He was back in the hospital. And the nurse called late in the evening and said, you guys need to come down here now. And my mother, my sister, and by the way, my mother, my sister, and my father were not alcoholic. Uh, my mother and my sister got ready to go say their goodbyes to my dad. And I, the emotional coward that I was, I locked myself in my room and I got loaded. And I knew my father would die that night and he did. And I mentioned this because it became a huge impediment to my sobriety from that point on. Whenever I was separated from a, a drink, whether I was in jail or in treatment, eventually there would come a moment when I would be flooded with guilt. And what I wanted to know from you, Alcoholics Anonymous, is how would I ever live with that shame? Which is a good question, right? But of course, I never asked anyone and I never stuck around long enough to get the answer until this time with the help of a sponsor in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've come across this line on page 124. It says, cling to the thought as if it were speaking to me. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. Now, if you've never heard that line before, just take a second to absorb 
the audacity of that statement. That our deepest, darkest secrets, the things that we don't want to tell anyone is our greatest possession. And I don't know if that's true for so-called normal people, but for us, that is the message of hope. It goes on to say that is what averts misery and death for other alcoholics. Because when I sit across from the new man and he says, Billy, you don't understand. I've done bad things. I get to say, me too, me too. Now let's walk together on this path. So um, my father died and, uh, and I came into some money. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't uh, Laguna Niguel money, it was Inglewood money, but, uh, <laughs> but it was enough to go a little crazy. And I started to uh, amass my little supplies and I would lock myself in my room of the family home and I would stay in there as long as possible, you know. And, uh, and one time I came out after a couple of days and I realized that my mother and my sister they had moved, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, with no forwarding address, uh, as they should have, by the way. For I was the uh, the alcoholic tornado in their lives. They didn't deserve that, and I wouldn't know where they lived for a, a really long time, uh, deep into sobriety. Um, but what happened is eventually, you know, when the money ran out, the bottom fell out of my life and I became a homeless person on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. And when I say that, I mean, in all its glory, you know, I was, uh, you know, living on the sidewalk. Technically I was what you call a, uh, a homeless, um, alcoholic, crackhead, window washer. I was one of those people. And if you parked your car near me, I would just start washing your windows Hopefully we work out a payment plan after that. <laughs> and I was filthy. Uh, I, wore the, I wore the uniform. Filth is how you advance as a homeless person, right? That's how you get better at it. I didn't, I didn't bathe or change my clothes for weeks, months at a time. My feet smelled so bad I could have taken off my shoes and, and robbed a bank with them, right? <laughs> I lived like that for a long time, you know? And I just want to say this, that um, you may think, gosh, that would never happen to me. Well, I didn't think it would happen to me either. It's not like I come from a long line of homeless people. Um, <laughs> it's amazing how far we can slide if we prioritize uh, drinking and using for years on end. It is really amazing. But more important is I understand why it was important for me to have that experience. Our 12 and 12 calls these steps ego smashing propositions. It was important for me to become humble. And on top of that, there were lessons that I learned about beauty and generosity, generosity between unhoused people and materialism. Lessons that I'm still metabolizing to this day, right? And so, um, so I lived like that for a long time. Um, and, and as I have alluded to the drugs, mainly heroin and cocaine are part of my story. But at this time I had become re-devoted to 
to alcohol. And I was living in this doorway of the middle of a block. And I would have to crack open that cheap gin, that cheap malt liquor, and I would have to drink it down as quick as possible before the, um, the police would come and pour it out, which would be a very sad day. That's, that is literally alcohol abuse. And, um, <laughs> and often it would be the same police officer and we would have some version of the same conversation. He'd say, Mr. Christian, I've told you, you cannot live and drink in this doorway. These stores don't want you around. And then I would say something snarky back. I would say, well, there you have it. You know, you think it's a business district. I think it's a residential neighborhood. We just have a little zoning problem. <laughs> and that's when he would, uh, he would wag his finger and he would say, I'm going to take you to jail. You want to go to jail? I will take you to jail. And then I would ask if it was burrito night. And <laughs> sometimes in the Parker Center jail downtown, they would give you the, the frozen burritos. And uh, that would take all the wind out of his sails. You know, he never took me to jail, not once. But he would call the uh, drunk tank, right? And these very nice gentlemen would come and they would put me in a vehicle and they would drive me a couple of miles east and they would let me go. Kind of like the Department of Fishing Game. <laughs> <laughs> same concept as a problem bear, same, same thing, yeah. Here's the interesting thing. So I was about five or six years sober. I was sitting in a meeting in Pasadena and guess who walks in and raises his hand as a newcomer? Oh. That police officer. I was like, oh, I will sponsor his ass. Like, I got that. <laughs> yeah, no one touched that one. That's, that was mine. That was mine. <laughs> I, I did not sponsor him, but I, did, I went out to him. I introduced myself like we do. Didn't, it didn't ring any bells. And then I very quietly mentioned where he might know me from. I will never forget this. He leaned back and he kind of squinted to adjust his vision. And when he recognized me, he reached out and he hugged me. I mean, he hugged me like he was trying to hug the hope out of me. Like whatever happened to me, he needed to have happened to him. It was just a, a beautiful and bizarre moment in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And I, I still see him every, we don't go to the same meeting, but I, I see him every now and then. <clears throat> um, what happened, you know, a lot of things happened, you know, a lot of things happened in three and a half years. Um, mainly that thing that I heard in AA, I had heard you say that there would come a day when it would stop working. And what that looked like for me is that there came a point when it didn't matter what I drank or what I put with it, it would no longer take away the pain. It would no longer sufficiently shut off my head. And at that point, I had nothing and nobody. Right? 
There's a line on page 151 that talks about the chilling vapor of loneliness settled down. That's how I felt, you know. Occasionally I would go to uh, some of the missions downtown to lick my wounds. I had been in, in one of their programs. I had gotten to know this guy uh, that worked there and, and he'd been sober for some time in AA. And I had, uh, I, you know, I'd been in their program for a week or two and he had gotten to know a little bit of my story. And then one day I was at the door waiting to get in the mission uh, to get some food. And he was, he was at the door. And I said, Joe, what should I do? You know, and he knew the nature of the question. He knew I wasn't asking for an extra cheese sandwich. He said, Billy, if I were you, I would jump off a bridge. And he walked away. <laughs> and I was like, what part of the program is that? <laughs> but here's the thing. I think it was an honest answer. He could not imagine living the way that I was living. And it looked like I was one of those 25% that was never going to get it. And that statement really got me in touch with my hopelessness. And what I didn't know is hopeless is a wonderful way to come into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't come directly. I went into treatment for the 14th time. But I'd had enough treatment to know that at best, at the very best, treatment can only keep me warm and safe and dry and point me in the direction of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And that's what happened. You know, I ended up getting a sponsor. Um, when I say that, I was at a meeting, I was in about, a, you know, a week sober and Let me back up just, just a second, because when I, when I came in, I had, I had a certain amount of willingness, which I think was a gift, right? And I started to do things just ever so slightly different. And one of those things was sliding up to a guy. And the first time, you know, I went up to this guy, he had about seven years and I said, uh, I said, I haven't had a job in 10 years. Do you think I'll get a job? And he said, he said, yes, you know, like emphatically. I was like, whoa, calm down, you know. <laughs> I said, what do you mean by that? He said, you will get, he said, you will get a job, not the job. And it will be practice. And that's where you will practice going to work and going to meetings. And when he said practice, it just took all the expectation out of it, you know? Like all I gotta do is go practice. And, and, and that really solidified just a little bit of hope. And, 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 and maybe a few days later, I slid back up to the same guy. And I said, I've avoided doing the fourth step for 14 years. And he proceeded to give me the fourth step advice that I needed to hear. I'm not sure you need to hear it, but this is what he said. He said, Billy, doing the fourth step, it's like eating a frog. If you have to eat a frog, don't look at it too long, just eat the motherfucker. And, uh, <laughs> that 
that was just one of the most profound things <laughs> I've ever heard. And, uh, and then I got this sponsor and it was just a guy at a meeting. I raised my hand as a newcomer, a lot of courage. Just respect to you that you did so tonight. Um, and, and this guy came up to me with a big book and he said, uh, you know, here, you know, and I, and I asked him to be my sponsor. Um, I didn't know what his story was. I didn't care what his story was. You got enough juice to hand out big books. You're it, pal. You're it. And, um, and I, was very, I was very grateful for uh, him walking me through the process of recovery. And I remember what it was like those first months of sobriety. I was both uh, jubilant and scared to death. You know, on one hand, I was I was daring to think maybe it could happen. It's happening for me. Maybe it's happening. And on the other hand, I was thinking, come on, man, you got a lot of problems. I mean, I had a lot of problems. Like I said, um, I hadn't had a job for 10 years since the job I told you about. I had been living on the street for three and a half years. That does something to your psyche, right? If you gaze into the abyss long enough, the abyss will gaze into you. And that's exactly how I felt. I had, um, as a homeless person, I had amassed uh, eight failures to appear in court. I had eight warrants, nothing serious, just open containers and, and jaywalking tickets, but I had eight of them. And then of course, uh, my only family, essentially uh, my mother and my sister, they were in the, you know, alcoholic protection program. <laughs> and I remember sitting in a meeting, ruminating about my problems, you know? And this lady walked up to the podium and it was her name was Yvonne P. She's passed away, God bless her. There was something about her. She was so dignified, so regal. And she came up to the podium and she said that her life didn't change until she stopped telling God how big her problems were and started telling her problems how big her God was. And that shocked me. And I didn't know what that meant. But I knew this. I knew that there was a power coursing through me that was keeping me sober. And I needed to cooperate with that power through this process of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I also needed to face life on life's terms, face my, my issues. And so I was um, given direction to go down to the Department of Employment. And I was honest with them. I told them that I hadn't had a job in 10 years. And they said to me, they said, uh, you, sir, is what, is what we call uh, chronically unemployed. And I was like, Thank, thanks for clearing that up. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, we appreciate that. Um, but they were nice, right? They took me in the back and they put me in this special chronically unemployed program, right? I, they had a special list of job leads. They gave me bus tokens. They started talking to me real slow. <laughs> <laughs> and they would send me out 
they would send me out on these job interviews, right? And by right around this time, I started to uh, I started to invoke the uh, whatever prayer, right? Very simple prayer. It goes like this: Whatever God, whatever you want me to work, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to live, just let me know. Whatever. And they would send me out. I would say that prayer, and they never got me a job. I was at a little, was at a little birthday party. I was talking to this lady. I told her that I was looking for work. She said, why don't you come down to my school? We need after school teachers. And I didn't have a, a better plan. And so the next morning I said that whatever prayer, whatever God, whatever you want me to work, whatever you want me to do, just let me know. And I had gotten sober in Burbank. And so I took the bus from Burbank to Pasadena. That took about two hours. And when I got to the school, the building right next to the school was for sale. It's part of the school now, but at the time it was for sale. They had a big real estate sign out in front. And the realtor's name was Bill Christian. That's my name. Like, God, I asked for a sign. I didn't think it was going to be a real sign. <laughs> And this was pivotal, right? Because I go in to fill out the application. I said, write an application, and then I get stuck on a question. And if you've ever been in trouble before, you probably know exactly what question I'm talking about. Yeah. And, 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 and the way it's worded at a school is like this. Have you ever been convicted of any crime? I was like, any crime? <laughs> And this is 1995, I'm sober about five months. I don't have a cell phone, I can't phone a friend. I sit there for a long time and I think, ah, sign, like this has gotta be the place. And so against my better judgment, I check yes. And then it said, if you check yes, explain. <laughs> <laughs> and so, this is what I wrote. I, I knew I needed to be succinct. I said, I've been convicted of misdemeanors due to my alcoholism, but I'm now a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I shouldn't have said that, by the way. But I didn't know anything about traditions in five months. And I handed it in, and the eyebrows raised. And they were like, okay, you know what? We're going to give you a shot but you have to get fingerprinted. I was like, no problem, that's in my skill set. Very good. Yeah. Uh, you'd be amazed. And so, so I started work over the course of the next year. Uh, I was promoted, I went back to school to, you know, to work on finishing my degree to become a teacher. Um, things are going swimmingly and alcohol is anonymous. Life is good. I get called into the um, head of school's office and the HR lady is sitting behind me on um, a couch with a legal pad. And I see my original application on the head of school's desk. And she said, you know, when you came to work here a year ago, um, we got a report back from the Department of Justice that you had no criminal history. She showed me the letter. And then she said, 
two weeks ago. We got a, another report back saying you've been arrested a dozen times. And she said, look, if we would have known then what we know now, we would not, we could not have hired you. There was a very long pause. And she said, but you've worked here a year and we've grown fond of you. And I remember walking out of that meeting just feeling so exposed, right? Just known in a way I didn't want to be known anymore. A few months later, it was August, it was teacher in service. This is, uh, these are the meetings that the teachers have before school starts. There's a big room like this. We're sitting in a circle. We're doing an icebreaker activity. And I end up sitting right next to the HR lady who had been sitting behind me in that meeting, making notes on a legal pad. And I ended up, it was an icebreaker thing. So I ended up, uh, I tried to go right, but that person had gone right. And so I was stuck with the HR lady. And very, and very, very quickly, she said, I know a lot about you and I'm sure that makes you uncomfortable. And I said, yeah. She said, I just want you to know that I've been sober for 13 years. And it's still hard to juxtapose how, how vulnerable, raw I felt at that meeting months before. But at the moment, my life felt like it was about to come all crashing down. You were there. You said, no, he's with me. You know? And I'm so grateful. I don't know what would have happened if I would have lost that job. I, I met my wife there, my kids come out of that situation. You know, um, I still work there 28 years later. I taught for 20 years and uh, I have another job now. I became an attorney four years ago. I still work there. Uh, the, the prayer is still the same. Whatever, God, wherever you want me to work, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to live, I'll do it, you know. And so I'm extremely grateful for my life. And, and in closing, I just want to be clear. I, I always want to give credit where credit is due, because it's not about me. It's not about what I did. It's about you. It's about this fellowship. It's about what God did. And what he did was peel me off that sidewalk and shook the dirt off of me and propped me up, just like he's propping me up right now. He said, this is what I can do, because I'm God.